everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me, your host, Zoe Blasky, where each week we chat about all things motherhood and well-being. This week I am really excited to share this guest with you. Now, you probably haven't heard of her unless you're a meditation and mindfulness geek like me, but Dr. Kristin Neff, PhD, is the world's leading expert on self-compassion. She was actually the first to operationally define self-compassion and she created a scale to measure self-compassion. So you may be thinking, what on earth is self-compassion? Well, the definition that she gives it is really simple. So she says, with self-compassion, we give ourselves the same kindness and care we'd give to a good friend. And if you know Motherkind or me or the podcast or what I'm about, I mean, the clue's in the name, really, Motherkind. And this is why this podcast and this interview is so important to me, because what I see time and time again is us mums unable to give ourselves a break. We are so kind to our friends and often so hard on ourselves. And I believe self-compassion and the practice that Kristen has developed and teaches all over the world when she's written books on it and definitely check out her TED talk this system that she's developed is a way of changing that relationship with ourselves and through the podcast I had so many aha moments from when she was talking about her son who's autistic having a meltdown on a plane and how she used her self-compassion practice to overcome that Here's a, really the key reason why all parents and all mothers especially need to know it is not selfish to give yourself compassion when you're parenting your child. To why actually being kind to ourselves is vital for our relationship with our children. She talks about something called mirror neurons, which is just absolutely fascinating. And actually, if we're being kind to others around us and not ourselves, that our children pick up on that and it can be really confusing for them. So rather than being selfish or indulgent, self-compassion, I believe, and Kristen Neff makes a really good case on the podcast, is a core skill that we need. We all need to start being much, much, much kinder to ourselves through this practice of self-compassion. You know, self-compassion can be misused as self-indulgence. Anything can be misused. But when you really care about yourself, you're going to choose, you know, long-term health over short-term pleasure. So I hope you enjoy the podcast. If you want to know more about Kristen, I'm going to put lots in the show notes, which you can find motherkind.co and then just go into the podcast section and you'll see her podcast with all the notes there. But I would encourage you to check out her work. As I say, her TED Talk is really accessible. There's also an eight-week program, which I've done, which is like the eight-week mindfulness course, but it's an eight-week mindfulness self-compassion course. And I'm actually thinking of doing the teacher training in that this or next year which I'd be really excited to start offering so I hope you really enjoy this podcast the only thing I just want to say which is a bit annoying is that we had to do it on Skype because Kristen's based in Texas I didn't fancy uh, flying over uh, to do the podcast so there are some glitches in the records I've done some editing on it so hopefully it's a bit better but I really hope that the slightly lower than usual quality doesn't impact on the enjoyment or hopefully the sort of aha and insight moments that I certainly got from recording it. So I hope you enjoy it. If you did, leave a review. Thank you so much. The reviews have been massively increasing. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And here it is. 
So, Kristen, welcome to the Motherkind podcast. I am deeply honoured to be chatting to you. I've followed your work for years. So to be actually talking to you, it does feel a bit like a dream come true to me. <laughs> so, well, it's wonderful. You're really putting forward the idea of kindness for mothers. Yeah, I mean, that's why, as we were just chatting about, that's why I called it Motherkind and I started Motherkind because what I saw in my work with mums was just mum's putting so much pressure on ourselves and really struggling to give ourselves a break if I'm honest so that's when I really got into your work on self-compassion and it's had such a huge impact on me and my parenting journey so for people who have no idea what we're talking about with this phrase (laughs) self-compassion could you explain what it is and what it means to you Yeah, well, I think, you know, the simplest way to understand what it is, is just really treating yourself with the same kindness, care, understanding when you're struggling that you would show to a good friend. Now, note that I say good friend, because we aren't always our most passionate with our nearest and dearest, but often a really good model of how to be really compassionate, understanding, supportive is how we treat our good friends when they're struggling. And so if you start comparing how you treat your good friends when they're feeling bad about themselves or feeling overwhelmed or going through a hard time, you know, we treat ourselves radically differently than the people we really care about. So the easy way to think of self-compassion is just to turn that kindness, that support, that care towards yourself when you're going through a difficult time. And so that's kind of the easy definition. It's a little more complex because I actually research self-compassion and you need something a little more solid than treat yourself like a good friend. (laughs) So my more formal definition, and I've got a scale to measure it, measures, first of all, how aware people are of their own struggle. You would think it would be dead obvious, right? But actually, we're often so lost in problem-solving mode or busy, 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 or just get it done that we don't pause to say, wow, I'm really having a hard time. I'm really, you know, this is difficult. So in order to give yourself compassion, you have to actually be mindful of the fact that you're struggling in some way. So that's kind of the first step. And then again, we need to react with with kindness, understanding, as opposed to harsh self-judgment. You should have done it better. You should have been perfect, which is our more usual way of being. But what's really important about self-compassion that differentiates it from self-pity is a sense of common humanity, right? The word compassion actually comes from the Latin, to suffer with. There's an inherent sense of connectedness in the word compassion. So in other words, we aren't saying, poor me, life is bad for just me, woe is me. It's more just like, wow, everyone struggles, everyone's imperfect, everyone makes mistakes. It's just really including oneself in the circle of compassion as opposed to being self-focused. And that's very important because self-pity actually isn't healthy but we know from a ton of research that self-compassion is very healthy Mm. and how did you come to study this to uncover this what was your path to it well my journey I learned about it through meditation actually I started learning about meditation and you know from the Buddhist point of view first of all compassion is very central in Buddhism Mm. as it is really I think in almost all religions But Buddhism really emphasizes this interconnectedness of self and other, that we aren't as separate as we think we are. And so from the Buddhist point of view, it's totally natural to give yourself compassion as well as compassion to others. You know, to separate, to give it just to others, not yourself, creates this artificial split that's not really based in reality. So I started learning to meditate, actually to deal with a lot of stress I was going through. And much to my surprise, the woman started talking about 
the importance of self-compassion, of supporting yourself when you're struggling, being kind to yourself, being patient, understanding. And, you know, it's funny. I'd never really even thought of it before. Like, wow, mm. I'm feeling a lot of stress. I could actually be a good, supportive, warm presence to myself. So I tried it out, and, you know, I was just amazed at my ability to cope with situations that came up. And so that really it was my personal practice that I decided to go ahead and research it. And then really it's become my life's work at this point. Yeah, I mean, it's such a gift to the world. I mean, and as you say, in a way, it's interesting to me that naturally we do find this so hard to do. Why do you think for something that's, you know, all the research has shown is almost unanimously beneficial, why do we not as human beings have this innate ability to be kind to ourselves? Why is it in fact the opposite, that we seemed wired to be hard on ourselves? Well, I think we're wired to be both. There's a reason that physiologically the the self-critical response tends to come first. And that's because we really have two main safety systems as human beings. So the oldest safety system that we share with all animals, I mean, even lizards have this, is the threat defense system, right? Fight, flight, or freeze. Mm -hmm. And the system that gets triggered is the most easily and quickly triggered system whenever there's a threat. You know, if a lion starts chasing you, you're going to flee or freeze in order to try to save yourself. It's very, very natural, very instinctual. Now, of course, the system developed for threats to our physical self, but with human beings, we're just as easily triggered by threats to our self-concept. So, you know, when we feel bad about ourselves or we make a mistake or we fail at something or just something really difficult happens, even if it's not actually life-threatening, you know, it's like, oh, my God, I got fired from my job, feels life-threatening, and our body reacts just the same way. Mm -hmm. So what happens is the fight response to fight the problem, we actually turn it inward because the problem is ourself, right? The problem is with our own self-concept. So we turn that inward, we beat ourselves up, you know, we isolate ourselves in shame, we freeze, we get lost in rumination, you know, trying to hope the problem will go away if we just think about it for the 57th time. You know, that's like, so it's actually a very natural response and we shouldn't be hard on ourselves for being hard on ourselves because we have to remember this is just, you know, our most instinctive way to try to feel safe. There's a problem, we try to feel safe, we use fight, flight, or freeze. But there's actually another safety system that we have access to as mammals, and that's the care response, right? So if you think of the big evolutionary advance from reptiles to mammals, is mammalian young are born very immature. There's actually a long developmental period where the mammal needs to be cared for by the parents while its brain adapts to the environment. And human beings by far are born the most immature. It takes between 15 and 25, maybe for some parents, 30 years for the child to be you know, independent <laughs> to go out on their own. But there's a reason for that because our brain takes 25 years to fully develop. And it's a good thing. But So we had to develop a very strong care system. Sometimes it's referred to as the attachment system that motivates parents to want to care for, provide for their children, keep them safe, and that motivates children to want to be cared for, right? So this is another way we feel safe. So, for instance, the threat defense system, it activates cortisol, adrenaline, fight, flight, or freeze. But the care system activates, like, opiates, oxytocin, those kind of 
ah, you know, feel good hormones yeah. can also make us feel safe. So really both systems are available to us. And what we're actually doing when we practice self-compassion, when we move away from our habitual self-criticism, the kind of soothing, caring for ourselves, being kind to ourselves, is we're just like switching our sense of safety from the threat defense system to the care system. So it is already available. It's just that it's not as quickly and easily triggered. And I have to say, there's a lot of cultural blocks to it as well. We don't think we should give ourselves that type of care. Women especially are socialized that they should just give care to others and they don't have the right to consider their own needs. Um, there's a lot of fears in our competitive capitalistic society that it's gonna, we're going to lose our edge. There's a lot of very strong blocks to self-compassion, which also added to the fact that it takes a little longer for this to come online. It has to be a little more intentional. I think that's really why it's, it's, it doesn't seem natural. But the good news is, is once people give themselves permission, once they read the research, understand it's not going to do all these horrible things you're afraid it's going to do, there it's also available. And I think especially for mothers, you know, I know you focus on motherhood. Mm. Mothers have a lot of access to the system, right? They know how to use their tone of voice, how to use touch, how to be kind, caring, supportive. I mean, at least they try, but, you know, most of us do a decent job to our children, so it's like we have these tools right in our back pocket. The only thing we need to do is give ourselves permission to use them with ourselves. But, you know, it's not rocket science. Actually, once you start the journey, it's surprisingly easy to change your habits. Mm, yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because I'm interested in this idea of the society's blocks to it. Do you come across people saying, isn't it weak? Isn't it self-indulgent? Isn't it selfish? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, there are actually five main blocks that come up almost every single place. I throw out to the audience, you know, why don't you think it's a good thing? And the same ones come up. First of all, it's self-pity. There's, you know, a lot of us are afraid it's self-pity. We think it's weak. We think it's self-indulgent. There's research, tons of research on every single one of them saying these are misconceptions. None of them are true. You know, people who are self-compassionate or who are taught to be more self-compassionate, they're more motivated, right? They still want to reach their full potential because they care, but they're motivated out of care for themselves, not because they feel inadequate, which means they have less performance anxiety. They're less afraid of failure. When they do fail, they're more likely to pick themselves up and try again. So we know self-compassion actually enhances motivation. But again, just the source of the motivation is different. It moves from, if you don't succeed, I'm going to think you're a failure, hang my head in shame, to I want you to succeed because I care about you. And actually that positive mind state, more creative thinking, more flexible thinking, because you aren't in the grip of fear. So it's actually a very helpful thing. And since we know from the research that I'm comfortable saying that it's actually one of the most powerful sources of coping and resilience we have available to us. So, for instance, we've done a lot of work with veterans, American veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, and we found soldiers' levels of self-compassion was more predictive of whether or not they developed post-traumatic stress syndrome than how much action they saw. In other words, it's not just what you face in life that determines how you cope. It's like, how do you relate to yourself when times are difficult? Are you an inner ally or an inner enemy, mm -hmm. right? What's going to make you stronger to have an ally by your side, the voice in your head saying, I got your back, I'm here, I care, you know, whatever happens, it's okay, I'm here to support you. Or that inner voice that says, you're crap, you're no good, you can't do it, what a failure. I mean, clearly, 
having this little enemy voice inside of our heads, which many of us do, does not make us strong. It just undermines us. And so when you learn to be an inner ally, this kind of good supportive friend, or you might think of it as like the ideal compassionate supportive coach or parent, when you have that voice inside of your head, it's going to make you much stronger and more able to succeed. Mm. Oh. It's interesting you said parent, because I was thinking that as you were talking, I was like, it's almost like parenting ourselves isn't it you know if jesse fell over how i would respond to her which would be with gentleness and kindness and and if i did the same i would probably be like can't believe you've done that you know it's very much like parenting ourselves in fact it's kind of like we parenting ourselves because yeah. we may or may not have had those ideal parents it's a really good analogy being a good parent because yeah so if your child falls down and is hurt you might soothe and comfort them but as a parent you don't only soothe and comfort your child Mommy, I don't want to go to school today. Can I eat those three tubs of chocolate ice cream? You don't say, oh, sure, little Johnny, right? That's indulgent. If we really love our kids, we don't indulge them because, yeah, it gives them short-term pleasure, but it's going to cause them long-term harm. And we don't, like, let them skip school. We motivate them. We want them to reach their ideal goals. It's exactly the same thing with ourselves. Sometimes we have to say no to ourselves. You, know, you need to exercise, you need to eat better, you need to work harder, you, whatever you need to do to be happy. If we really care about ourselves in the same way a parent would care for their child, you know, we aren't going to let ourselves off the hook. We aren't going to indulge ourselves. We aren't going to be weak or lazy. There's two ways you can parent a child. And sadly, the old way used to be spare the rod and spoil the child. You know, we really used to believe as parents that we had to use harsh punishment mm. to get our kids to stay in line. We use fear as a way to control our kids. And now we know, especially through all the research, that love, support, kindness, often with firm boundaries. This isn't like sloppy love. This is often tough love, but that a way to support and be there for your kids is much more effective. And it's the exact same thing with ourselves. Is there any research on self-compassionate parents and how their parenting changes and how that child's behavior changes? There is a little bit of research on parents, not as much, I think is a really great area. We've actually developed this compassion training program and we're kind of hard at work at making an adaptation for parents, but it's kind of early days yet. So we don't really have the technology quite yet. But certainly we know that it helps parents cope. It helps them cope with stress. We know that people, for instance, who maybe didn't have a good childhood history with their parents had insecure attachment, that they can actually reparent themselves to give themselves secure attachment. We know it's very helpful for parents, especially in terms of dealing with stress. But I think the next step of research, which is uh, will be really exciting, is to see, you know, how does it benefit my children? I know that's not as a researcher, but... As a parent, as you know, it's always if you read my book and saw my film, you know, my child's autistic. And I just don't know what I would have done if I didn't have my self-compassion practice when he got diagnosed. First of all, it helped me cope, right? It allowed me to fully accept all these feelings I thought I shouldn't be having, feelings of, you know, let's face it, feelings of disappointment and fear and Kind of like, is it something I did? Or, you know, was it that margarita I had when I was six and was pregnant? You know, all these thoughts go through your head. Mm. So it really allowed me to accept myself and to be there and comfort myself. But what it really allowed me to do, but the more I could accept and comfort and support myself, especially when things were difficult, is it allowed me to be there for Rowan. Right. Here's a, really the key reason why all parents and all mothers especially need to know it is not selfish 
to give yourself compassion when you're parenting your child. And that's because as human beings, our brains are actually designed to emotionally resonate with each other. This is actually a key feature of human being success. You know, those groups who could read each other's emotions, who are able to resonate with each other, we are much more able to cooperate, and we are much more likely to survive. And this happens at the pre-verbal level. We actually have something called mirror neurons that allow us to feel what other people are feeling. Mm. So, you know, if you see someone get their finger slammed in a door, the pain centers of your brain are going to light up, right? This is part of the way our brains are structured. And this is why sometimes, you know, maybe your spouse comes home and you're in a bad mood and you try to hide it and they can always tell because they can feel your mood. So what happens is, when we're with our children, you know, we may be very careful to try to be loving and caring toward them. And all children tantrum, I mean, autistic children really tantrum, but all children do. So when you are even trying to fake it and like trying to be the best parent you can, but inside you're like really frustrated or really angry, or maybe you're beating yourself up because you did something bad, your child is picking up on that. Your child is feeling it. And I saw this with Rowan. He was like a mirror for me, especially, you know, he took a long time to talk. So when our verbal communication wasn't very good, I'll tell you a story. I remember one time I was on a plane. We were on a transatlantic flight and something triggered him. He went into a full on screaming, flailing tantrum. And, you know, I thought, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And I had the brilliant idea of to the toilet, maybe it'll muffle his cry, but of course it was occupied. So, you know, here he is, right outside the toilet, screaming, flailing, he's a big five-year-old, and I had nothing to fall back on except my self-compassion practice. You know, and I did this often with him. I would put all my energy on myself. You know, this is so hard, you know, I feel so helpless, and, you know, trying to be kind to myself, giving myself soothing, supportive words, maybe holding my own hand, and just, you know, it's going to be okay, I'm here for you. I would speak to myself like, you know, literally as if I were speaking to a really good friend. And when I did that, he would inevitably calm down. It's like his mirror neurons were sinking with mine. So when I was agitated and overwhelmed, he would get more agitated because he's picking up on my mind state. But when I could calm and soothe myself and kind of fill myself with a sense of kindness and, and care, he would need that and calm down. So it's a two-way street, right? So even though we're with our kids and they're screaming and, you know, it agitates us because our mirror neurons are being activated, if we can deal with that internally with self-compassion, we're actually indirectly helping our children. First of all, we can model it for them, like explicitly, but even implicitly, they're picking up on our more kind, peaceful um, state of mind. So this idea that, you know, as if it's even possible to treat people kindly and beat ourselves up and as if it won't affect them. It does. And again, the more we're kind to ourselves, the more other people benefit, not only because we've got more resources, but also just because they're interacting with someone who's more peaceful and full of kindness and love. You know, it's one of my things I'm most passionate mm -hmm. about because I know so many parents don't give themselves permission to be kind to themselves, but it really is the best thing you can do for your child as well as yourself. No, I totally agree. I was just nodding away. I wish you could see me. I was just <laughs> stop this one because you know I, I tell you, born this out my own experience over and over again. Yeah, I mean I've got my own experience, but interestingly on the other side because I had a wonderful mother who was you know incredibly kind to us, but who wasn't kind to herself. 
And everything that you're saying, that was my experience. And actually, I picked up on a really young age between that dissonance between I could see how she was with herself and how kind and loving she was to us, you know, always putting herself last. And, and it's almost that disconnect that was really confusing. Part of why I do the work I do, and I'm so passionate, is because it was my own first-hand experience of that. And I thought, when I'm a mum, I will keep doing all the inner work that I'm doing so that I can have the best relationship with myself possible first. I think that's where it all starts. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, it, it, it's both. I mean, I actually don't think it's like you have to have self-compassion first. I think it's just always reciprocal. We're always, you know, compassion flows in, flows outward. But if you put a block, if you put like, say, compassion cannot flow this direction, and you're putting like a wall in the system, which doesn't allow it to flow naturally. Mm. And so I don't really even have to think about who's first. I just think, you know, anytime there's pain, you give that pain compassion. Now, often our own pain is the one we're most aware of first. When that's the case, you know, yeah, absolutely focus on yourself. And if your child's pain is what's most salient, focus more on them. But also any empathetic pain, any kind of secondary pain you're feeling, from seeing your child in pain, which is absolutely mothers. I mean, it hurts when your child is hurting. You have to validate the fact that it hurts for you as well. And if you leave that pain unattended to, it's actually not going to help your child because they won't be able to, you know, you'll get frustrated, you'll get burnt out, and it will actually negatively affect them, as well as limiting your ability to be a good caregiver. So, you know, there's really no good reason not to be kind to yourself mm. and again all the research shows it doesn't make you self-indulgent people exercise more they go to the doctor more they're more likely to practice safe sex they take more responsibility when they've hurt someone because it's safe to own up and say oh my god i did that i'm so sorry they have better relationships people actually report be much happier with self-compassionate partners because they say they're more giving they're less controlling there's more intimacy in the relationship Right, you know, they cope better with adversity. There's only one study out of about 1,500 that found that for some people they floss their teeth a bit less when they were more self-compassionate. But I suspect maybe they were like, you know, self-compassion can be misused as self-indulgence. Anything can be misused. But when you really care about yourself, you're going to choose, you know, long-term health over short-term pleasure. So it's kind of an anomaly, but. Have you ever sort of come across people who, or I guess you have, who, you know, have a willingness and a desire to want to be, extend this compassion and love to themselves, but just as you were talking about then, blocks, experience blocks. Do people have to go to therapy to dig out what happened in their own childhood or are there practical things that people can do to overcome? Because I feel like a lot of the mums I work with, this feeling guilty, feeling less than, being hard on themselves, being perfectionist is quite hardwired. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not everyone needs to go to therapy, but it can be really helpful. I mean, I go to therapy and I don't even have any particular issues. I just just find it's really helpful. Me too. (laughs) So self-compassion, again, it's rooted in this care system. And if everything was good, if you were securely attached, if your parents met your needs when you're upset, the system tends to function pretty well. What can happen for people whose parents were maybe really very critical or maybe like neglected them when they were in pain or, you know, worst case, scenario, actually were abusive. What can happen is the care system actually gets mixed with feelings of like neglect or fear. 
And it can actually be quite scary to start being self-compassionate. Mm. And there's actually a term we have for it. We call it backdraft, which is a firefighting term. And it refers to, you know, when a house is on fire, the firemen don't just go up and open the doors because the fresh air rushes in. It fuels the fire and the flames rush out. And it can actually be quite explosive. And, and a similar thing can happen with us. I mean, not quite as dramatic, but, you know, basically we, we've kept the doors of our heart closed our whole life to protect ourselves. We needed to, you know, especially if, when we are children. It's the only option we have is to kind of shut the doors of our heart. And then we start to open the doors of our heart. The fresh air of compassion and kindness flows in, and often the old pain rushes out. And it's actually not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. Mm. It needs to come out for the healing to occur, but it can be kind of overwhelming and it should be done slowly. And, you know, you never want to rip the doors open your heart if it's really painful to give yourself compassion. You want to go to slow pace. It can really help with the therapist. You can you know, help regulate it. We talk about conscious closing. So instead of just closing the door of your heart unconsciously because you're feeling overwhelmed, you say, wow, this is a bit much from right now. I'm feeling overwhelmed. Maybe I'm going to pull back a little bit and stop doing this practice or like do some mindfulness practice or take a walk. If you do it consciously, you're actually developing the habit of giving yourself what you need and caring for yourself. So yeah, for some people, especially people with any sort of trauma history, it can be more difficult. It's often very helpful to do it with the help of a therapist. But, you know, really, as long as you're willing to go slowly, to, you know, put your toe in if it's too much, to kind of pull back and to go at your own pace, allow yourself to be a slow learner. Really, it seems anyone can learn it. It's really helpful. Yeah. And you've got a new workbook, haven't you, coming out that I think would be good to talk about now because that might yeah. be a nice companion to that process. If people are sort of thinking, how do I access this process that you're talking about? Then yeah. you've written this new workbook, haven't you? Do you mind sharing about that? The last seven or eight years, I've been working with a close colleague named Chris Germer, who is a clinical psychologist, trying to figure out how do we teach people these skills. We know they're good. You know, I've done the research to establish that. How do we teach it to people? So we developed something called the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, which teaches mindfulness and primarily self-compassion skills, you know, through exercises, written exercises, and formal practices in daily life. There's some meditations in there. And we've developed an eight-week program, which is actually widely available in the UK. You can go to centerformsc.org and you can find the courses in the UK. That is available. But then what we did is, of course, you know, not everyone has the time to take a course or maybe there's not one right near them. So we decided to put the content of the course in a workbook format, right, that kind of leads you through, that explains the concepts, that takes you through the exercise, that also has some safety caveats, you know, if this road gets a bit too bumpy, you know, take this other pathway, things like that. Yeah. Um, and that's coming out this August. So I'm really hoping that this will make these practices that we've spent the last seven or eight years developing are much more widely available. Mm-hmm. And you can also take it online for those who have a little more time. I mean, you can take the course online through Center for MSC. So. And now we're working on, you know, trying to specialize with certain populations. So like I said, we have some people working on this program for parents, other people for people in recovery from addiction, other people with trauma histories, other people like in healthcare professions. So we've got the basic curriculum down. 
now we're tailoring it for specific people and it seems to be, you know, working really well. Mm. And what are some of the like examples of some exercises or some things that people might be doing just to give people an idea of the type of practice? Yeah. Well, so, you know, believe it or not, one of the easiest ways to give yourself compassion is to use some sort of supportive touch. And it feels really bizarre. You know, (laughs) you probably don't want to do it necessarily in public, (laughs) <laughs> but as mammals, as mammals, touch is one of the key triggers of the compassion response. So there's a lot of research. You know, you can put your hand in a box, not see who's on the other side, and you know if someone's touching you in a caring way, in a supportive way, in an aggressive way, in an indifferent way. So again, our bodies, because we're mammals, understand what's communicated through touch, a sense of care. So we can actually... Hold our own hand, put your hands on your heart, maybe cup your cheeks. You know, people are different in terms of what feels caring and supportive. But once you get over, like, that this is really awkward part of it, (laughs) believe it or not, your body doesn't know the difference. Your body responds to your own touch in a very similar way that it might respond to the touch of a loved one. So when times are hard, the reason it can be really useful to, you know, put your hands on your heart or your stomach or some other touch is because it cuts through the mental chatter and it goes straight to your body. Mm -hmm. It helps, you know, your body relax. It activates the parasympathetic nervous response, oxytocin, opiates, you calm down, your heart rate becomes more variable. In other words, it's, it's a kind of a quick way to access the care system without having to even involve your thought process so that can be really useful but then you know your thoughts are also very important so you know that's a simple way touch and then combined with very simple all you have to do is ask okay if I had a really dear friend who was experiencing the exact same thing I'm experiencing now you know who maybe just got that call from the doctor or just made that mistake or, you know, failed at something important to them or got rejected. And usually when we think about our friends, we know what to say. We know the tone of voice to use. We know kind of how to support someone in need. You know, not everyone, but most of us by the time we're later in life, we've learned how to be a supportive friend. So just think, okay, well, try it with myself. And again, it does feel awkward at first. I'm not going to lie. It feels awkward. But once you get over that awkwardness and you start realizing the benefits of being that good friend, to yourself as well as to others. Touch plus really kind, supportive language, plus tone of voice. Again, as mammals, we're really linked to tone. You know, is the tone cold? Is it warm? So adding warmth, a warm tone of voice, supportive language, and some sort of touch. If you just do those three things alone, it'll make a huge difference in terms of your ability to be there for yourself when you need it. Mm. And what I like about those is that they're all quite quick, aren't they? Because I was imagining, you know, if Jesse was having a tantrum, I could touch my arm and just give myself that reassurance so that, you know, she was okay and I'm okay. I like that because it's something for yeah. parents, it's really accessible. For parents, I do have like a lot of guided meditations on the website, which are great. But let's face it, how much time do parents have to meditate? Yeah, none. <laughs> I do with Ron, you know, being a full-on screaming, flailing tantrum. And I would like just put my hands on my heart and say, you know, this is so hard for you, darling. I'm here for you. I understand it's going to be okay. Again, I'm speaking to myself. If you can talk to yourself in the I voice or the you voice, or you can call yourself by a term of endearment, it kind of helps to use as if you're talking to someone else. Because what that actually does, what we know this from the research, is that instead of being lost in the emotion, like I'm so overwhelmed, I'm going to scream. 
it's like you can say, oh, wow, you are really having a hard time, darling, using that you voice. That actually gives you some perspective so you aren't lost in the emotion. And we know actually, believe it or not, that that perspective actually calms down amygdala reactivity mm. because you aren't so lost in, I'm being attacked. It's like, oh, you're having a hard time. Gives you some space, gives you a little chance to, you know, respond as opposed to react. So very mm. simple things like that can be actually amazingly effective. And if you have time to meditate, that's great. But our research shows it actually doesn't matter. You know, what matters is you start relating to yourselves in times of difficulty in a kinder, more supportive way. And for parents, especially for caregivers, especially doing it on the spot. Oh, I know I'll give you another practice, which is really useful for parents, you know, in the spot. We know that focusing on your breath is inherently good because, again, it helps calm us. It helps activate the parasympathetic response. But instead of just noticing your breath, you can actually use your breath as a vehicle for compassion, you know, using some imagination. You can imagine that you're breathing out compassion for your child, you know, oh, poor darling, why, you know, if your kid's sick or if they're struggling or even being bratty, I mean, you still want compassion, right? Breathing compassion out for your child and breathing compassion in for yourself. And when you breathe in for yourself, you know, you can add a visual, you can breathe in like a glowing light if that helps, or maybe some word like kindness. When you breathe in for yourself, you're just acknowledging, hey, this is challenging for me too. Breathe in for yourself and you breathe out, it's challenging for my child. And so then you breathe in and out and then the compassion flows. It's not just going one way, it's mm-hmm. like in and out. And you know, a lot of people like, for some reason, they have the idea that You only have a set amount of compassion, like four units. And if I give three to myself, I'm only going to have one left over for my child. It doesn't work that way, right? Compassion and love really is unlimited. And so the more we get this flow of the love and the kindness and the care going, I'm actually the more that's available to give to your child as well as to yourself. So using something like the breath, for instance, if people come and they like to share with me because they like my work and they sometimes they tell me this stuff. and like, oh my God, I don't know how to respond. I feel overwhelmed. So my immediate response is to breathe in for myself. You know, I feel overwhelmed. This is really hard. It's very difficult. I don't know what to say. I'm feeling a lot of pain about what they just told me. And then I breathe out for them. It's a, a very simple tool, but amazingly effective in terms of, again, getting that flow of compassion going in both directions Mm, and I can so imagine that you know when especially when Jesse's two and a half so is in that slight you know tricky phase that's when I want to disconnect from her and I've noticed it as we were talking about earlier you know when I disconnect from her it never gets better or it takes longer it's when I can connect with myself as you're saying and then with her it tends to I seem to find a way through you know that mirror we were talking about so I think that's such a good tool Yes. And then also, I know a lot of Brits, so I know this is a a big problem in British culture, that this confusion with self-pity is emphasized in British culture, that I think a lot of parents would feel like, breathing in for myself, that's pity, right? Yeah. I don't like pity. So I think just remember, you aren't saying that somehow you have it harder than other mums, or that, you know, that your life is so terrible. You're just acknowledging that like every single other mother in the entire world it's difficult, you know, two and a half child mm-hmm. and average. You know, that's actually what connects us as mothers. You aren't saying it's just me or poor me. You're just acknowledging that this aspect of motherhood is difficult. 
you know, and you're just saying, hey, mm. this is difficult. I'm having a hard time like all other mothers have a hard time. And so just like all mothers deserve some compassion, I'm going to give myself to me and also give it to my child. Right. And so that's why that connectedness piece of compassion is so important, because if it ever does become woe is me and you start going down the rabbit hole of self-pity and you start feeling isolated and then that's actually not healthy. When you just remember, hey, I'm part of this larger cloth. It's not just me. This is the human experience, and especially the experience of being a parent, you know, universally. I know I have to say it really helped me with my son's autism because, you know, you can feel kind of isolated when your child's autistic on the playground and the other kids seem normal, you know, and you think, well, why my child? But I would just remind myself, yeah, okay, well, maybe these other children don't have autism, but... Every child has their own struggle. It could be, you know, some other mental health issue, a physical issue, or just conflicts or life unfolds. But in fact, having struggles and challenges with your children, doing your best and loving them anyway, that actually what united me with other mothers. It didn't isolate me. Yeah, the flavor of the struggle was different. Maybe even the degree of the struggle was different. The fact of parents struggle with their children, they make mistakes, they get it wrong, they do their best, and they try to love their children as best they can. That's actually what unites all of us. Mm. And so when you can remember that connectedness and you don't feel so alone, it's really, really helpful on a lot of levels. Mm. It's beautiful as well, just being part of that human race and that humanity. It's so important to remember that. And how is Rowan doing now? Is he 14 now? He's 16. 16. He's 5 foot 11. Yeah, he's a, a very handsome young man. Is he? You know, so he just went to his first prom, which is very cool. So, you know, he's funny. He's still very autistic, but he is just he's such a bright, shining light. He's just a really happy, positive, loving child. And so, like, he goes to a private school, and, you know, it's not even an autism school. It's for neurotypical kids, but um, the school really values kindness as one of their core values, and they just love Rowan, you know? They just love how, like, honest he is and how unselfconscious he is, and, you know, yeah, he's autistic. He goes in the loops, and he stems, and he, you know, he has to always be moving, walking back and forth, but he's so authentically him and so happy it's just beautiful to see so he's doing really well what have you learned from him oh well gosh i mean first of all most of my best teaching stories come from him (laughs) (laughs) this is the wisdom of the babes right my singing voice is not my best feature and i actually have a lot of shame about my singing voice and the other day i was in the car and i was singing along to the radio and i said oh such a terrible singer and he says you aren't a terrible singer, Mommy. You just sing terribly. Oh. <laughs> the things like that. You know, he's just so authentic. And, yeah, it's just so I learn a lot about the importance of being oneself, you know. And he's totally comfortable with his autism. He tells people he doesn't have an ounce of shame about it, which is so beautiful to see. And, yet yeah, he's just a really giving, loving guy. So I learned a lot from him. Mm. And I ask everyone the same question at the end of every chat, which is if you could gift all the mums in the world one thing, what would that be and why? So again, you know, you may not be surprised, but I think especially it's that they give themselves permission to be kind to themselves. Mothers know how to do it. Mm -mm. We have the skill set. The thing that gets in the way for mothers is we don't give ourselves permission. 
to be kind to ourselves. We think we shouldn't. And that's what I wish all mothers would do is even just try it out for a couple of weeks, you know, and just see what happens. Because my experience and all the research, it will just make you an even better, stronger, more supportive and loving mother to your child. Mm, that's such a great invitation, isn't it? Just experiment for a couple yes. of weeks. And if someone's keen on seeing you, you're coming to London, aren't you? You've got a workshop on the 14th of July. Yes, I've got a, a day-long workshop in London, the 14th of July, so you could come to that. Again, we have several wonderful mindful self-compassion teachers in the UK, which you can find if you go to centerformse.org. If you just Google self-compassion, you'll find my website, and I have guided meditations. You can actually test your own self-compassion level if you want to get a sense of how you score. We've got exercises, and then the research is on there and, and links to other websites. So that's probably a really nice place to start, and then you can go from there. And again, we're also having increasing online training, which can be helpful for mothers who mm. can't almost get out of the house. So exactly. Yeah. Well, I will put links to all of those oh, so that people people can find those. And finally, I just want to say a huge thank you, not only for doing this interview, but also for your work, for your massive contribution, and for your part in my journey. So thank you. Oh. Oh, <laughs> thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. So that's it. Thank you for listening to the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. And if you did, please do leave a review on iTunes. It does make a massive difference to the number of mums that we can reach with this content. If you were listening to that episode, thinking about one of your friends that they might benefit from what we were chatting about, then just tag them in on Instagram. My bio will include the link to the podcast so they can find it really easily from there. People often tell me they're desperate to share it with their friends. So if that's you, then please do. I feel like the guests that we have on the podcast, their wisdom just deserves to be heard far and wide. So help me make that happen. I'd be very grateful. And also, if you want to send me any comments or thoughts about the episode, then please pop over onto Instagram at motherkind underscore Zoe. And also, just to let you know about my coaching. So I do work one-on-one with mums on my programme, which is a three-month programme called Reconnect to You. So if you want to work with me on taking your power back in any area of your life, then please do get in touch. Just drop me an email, zoe at motherkind.co or look on the website, www.motherkind.co. That's it. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Take care.